Welcome back to Labeled, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter, and today is a special episode because it's a celebration of one of the most pivotal albums in Tooth & Nail history. The Moon is Down is a total game changer. Of course, it's a fan favorite, but this one also checks the box in a big way as a named influence by artists, drummers, guitarists, song arrangers, and vocalists. They all cite this album constantly for helping them expand their minds to new possibilities and for causing them to have creative breakthroughs, and that's what it's all about. So it's a really cool feeling to be able to reflect on an achievement this big for our scene and something reaching its 20-year anniversary and for for it to hold up so well and have the ability to talk to these guys is is very, very cool. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, Also, if you haven't yet subscribed to the new labeled feed, which is labeled Deep Dives, Please do that this time. Look up Deep Dives. Go to labeleduniverse.com. Uh, there's a series that we're doing on Under Oath's Voyeurist. It's a very deep exploration of how they work and how their minds work and how they collaborate and you know what it means to self-produce and covers a lot of the history of the band. Um, and it gets pretty intimate with them and, and their relationships and stuff like that. Episode 2 is out right now, and it covers the legendary Aaron Gillespie and how he thinks about creating music and how it all works in his head and it's a really cool one so check that out labeled deep dives so please subscribe to that feed as well okay here's me and chad and steve and nick let's start by just thinking about where further seems forever comes from and i know people know uh that there's a strong arm was the foundation for it and all three of you guys were in strong arm correct yeah. Yes. Okay. So let's yep. just let me just start by trying to get you guys' thoughts on what is special about Florida um, in those in those years in the '90s and up to the 2000s. The amount of talent that found its way to this music scene from there um, and just you know became a hotbed of people and things. Um, I was in South Carolina at that time, and it just felt like my gosh, there's so much stuff in Florida. It's its own oh own whole scene and everything and i just want to know what was special about that why florida what can you remember about that i mean i don't think that it was particularly special um i think that it was the result of being feeling left out in south florida in particular um a lot of natural bands would tour but they wouldn't come to south florida so it was, I, I feel like the way that the scene grew was just like, hey, screw everyone else. You know, we're just going to make our own thing. And and that, it was really great because, you know, uh, the shows would be punk bands and ska bands and hardcore bands and indie rock bands and all different kinds of bands would play together and you kind of knew everyone and um everyone was you know we would just make these big shows and as far as like talent what i just feel like maybe it was like we didn't have anything better to do but play music you know um and like uh, and then you know after you work hard at something no matter what it is there's going to be some level of success there i think is is it like a post grunge thing, or how did you find each other? I mean, what 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 caused people that are as talented as you guys that were as technically had the ability to to do it to find each other and and you know how did that how was that? 
Well, I mean, Steve, we we actually met first in Tampa, so or St. Pete, and you know, he eventually moved, ended up moving down and has his own story. But I, Chad, we we all just met each other through you know mutual friends. I've known Josh, the other guitar player, since we were in fourth grade. Um, Chris, we met through um, you know other bands that we played with in the scene. So, yeah, it was just a good concentration of a lot of you know, just talented people around in the same time, in the same place, I think. And what was it like in the 90s when you guys were meeting and doing Strong Arm and then into this, though, what was the background music that you all had in common that you were listening to? Was it mail-order indie stuff or was it mainstream stuff or post-grunge, like part of that whole time period? I tried to get a grip on that. What were you listening to? Yeah, I mean, I know for me, I was very into hardcore, you know, and was very narrow as far as that goes. Uh, I just loved everything about it. I loved the the feeling of unity that you got mm-hmm. um, in the scene. I felt like, you know, as a middle class, you know, white kid, you know, I felt like I had found like my people, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I belonged to certain you know, uh, clicks or, you know, it's a pretty common story, I think. But um, I just, uh, you know, you mentioned like grunge, like grunge, that word just like repulses me. Like I, I hated, I hated, uh, you know, mud honey and, you know, sound garden and all those. I know you're from Seattle. But no, I just hated what it was. Like Nirvana, I was like, okay, it's kind of cool, you know, that they're getting big or whatever. But it was, you know, I, I think I kind of, uh, maybe even still to this day, I kind of have a knee-jerk reaction to things that are, are like for the masses. Because, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but but yeah, it was I mean, a I grunge, would... a parallel scene somewhere else where that it was not for the masses and then, you know, became big. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I didn't see it that way. <laughs> that was just radio rock to you, but you were t- tied yeah. to this hardcore scene. Was it straight edge? Was that part of it? Yeah, mostly. I mean, I was into some of the earlier punk stuff. You know, Descendants is real big, and and you know, like uh, Misfits, and you know, uh, you know. Uh, what are some other bands, Nick or Steve? Steve Steve is it has a different start. Steve was always very eclectic with his yeah. With his taste. Well, I think what's interesting, like hardcore, is definitely a thread that goes through. I think all of us, but I think what was interesting is we were around each other and knew each other long enough where we actually um, saw each other's musical tastes changing. So when I first met Chad and Josh, you know, we were all into hardcore and we essentially grew up together, you know, and we started, our musical tastes started changing. So we started listening more toward, you know, more discord bands and, you know, started listening to, you know, these just kind of branching out. And then Steve, I think, brought in a lot of influence too from his side and the music that he liked. That and exposed us to a lot of interesting and new music that I think influenced a lot of the sound that you hear in further as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Steve, how were you yeah. interfacing with the hardcore scene or not? Well, one thing I wanted to piggyback off of on your initial question to Chad, like why was the Florida scene, you know, kind of our own thing? 
another reason was a lot of the national and regional bands that we all liked never came down that far. <laughs> mm-hmm. Never came down to South Florida. I mean, usually they would stop at Tampa or maybe Tampa or maybe not even Florida uh, a lot of times. So it was one of those things like, you know, let's, yeah, kind of like let's create our own scene. And it was a great camaraderie of uh, a lot of people that we're, we're still lifelong friends with now as a result of playing shows in the midst of that scene in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. So it, it was special in that respect that it, it really created, even if it's just like from a distance, you know, lifelong acquaintanceships and friendships with a lot of people who we still, you know, from time to time keep in contact with. And that's the origin of it is this is that mid nineties, early mid nineties, uh, music scene. And, and even the, the way the shows were, it was always uh, eclectic speaking of always a great variety of, different sounds, different types of bands, but I guess they were, I guess maybe it was all under the remote umbrella of alternative, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even alternative. You could have a, yeah. You could but have a the, ska band, a hardcore and an indie rock band, you know, that kind of thing. But there was a close, um, let's see if I, these words work for it. It was a lot of talent, but very close knit. Like it was a concentration of talent and a close knit thing because it was in South Florida. Is that how you think of it? Where, um, like the hardcore thing is such a community-based, close-knit thing. Like it's a lifestyle and a music style and, uh, you know, activities that people do together and it has its own rules and things like that. So it's like almost a, I'm not saying it's a religion, but straight edge and like it has its own moral code, doesn't it? Yeah, there's uh, just a lot of creative people down here during that time. It, it like happened, like just so happens kind of thing, mm-hmm. I, I guess. And we all kind of right place at the right time started uh getting to know each other and and yeah like like they were saying um obviously they known each other a while and and they we had met numerous times when i lived in tampa because i played drums for a for a ministry called refuge and uh their prior bands like ichthus and uh and dur would uh play shows there and uh i was kind of like the house drummer there for a little while and then we kind of met that way and and you know, I loved hardcore as well, but I just, I'm, I'm, yeah, but like Nick said, I was all over the place. I'm very eclectic. I like a lot of different stuff. So, but, but yeah. By the time further exists, it's like, why is this so different? Where does this come from? How is this, what is this music is the way everybody seemed to um, encounter it. And it was always, well, it was this hardcore band, but now they're doing melodic stuff <laughs> like that, like that, whatever that was. Can you remember your decision-making or preferences and how that interface at that time? I'd just love to take as long as you yeah. want to walk me through those decisions. Well, I'll speak for myself, and, and I think it might echo some of the same thoughts that Chad and Steve have. But, you know, for for me, I think it was a, a pretty natural progression because we were listening to a lot of the, the bands that we were influenced by in further. So for me, I think... I just got tired of playing heavy, heavy music and I wanted to do something different. And I thought the challenge was interesting and it, I was just influenced by a lot of these bands that were around at the time, like mineral and, and sunny day real estate. And a lot of what, I guess these early emo bands that people consider today, we were listening to a lot of that stuff. And, you know, we um, just kind of evolved into that sound. And, and I think, we were just all on the same page, oddly enough. I think Steve 
you know, we all wanted to keep playing together and we all thought the idea was, was a good one. So it just kind of naturally became further. Um, so I don't know what Chad and Steve think, but for me, that was some of where I was at. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's, yeah, that's obviously, I mean, I have these distinct memories of like, of like Nick, like with uh, the uh, Jawbox EP, you know, and just like, like huddling, like, oh man. But I think what we kind of discovered was that we only kind of knew how to be in a hardcore band, like Stronger. So a lot of that really rubbed off, like we wanted to do something different, but a lot of it rubbed off. And I think even like going into the last Strong Arm record, um, Advent of a Miracle, like it was like we were listening to a lot of Fugazi, Quicksand and stuff like that. So we, and, and Steve was on that record. And so I think you can hear some of that influence there. just kind of said you know what it's okay to play soft and have some feel to it rather than like bludgeoning people over the head with every note you know um and and kind of coming to those terms and and like nick said like it helped that there there was a lot of like peers like at the time you know there that were coming out and like like get up kids and like Sunny Day and, and Sensefield and all those bands. And and so, it, it, like, it felt like the next evolution because I think a lot of the bands that, that we were listening to at the time, they all came hardcore bands. So it was kind of like the next step. Like, we called it post-hardcore. That was, that was what it was. I think, I think that makes a ton of sense. I mean, and, and post to you means um, that you go beyond and you push the boundaries of and see what else you can add to kind of a thing to the hardcore? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think like Nick said, like it got very old just playing heavy music all the time, even though we still loved it and everything, but Strong Arm kind of ended organically. It wasn't like we had like this big blowout. For the next thing that we were doing, uh, we just were kind of like, let's not have any rules. Like, if we wanted to have like some guy do like rap on it and do hip hop, like we would do it <laughs> if we wanted to. Not saying we would, but I'm just, you know, it's about transcending wanted. some rules. I like that, you know, because hardcore yeah. at, at some point it does. It's like the foundation of that community is like it's built on things or has rules or 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 it's. It's not narrow. I mean, it's a pretty diverse set of type of music that can fit in hardcore even. But um, yes, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, po- it's past the rules a little bit. Yeah. What and people uh, will let you know too that you're not abiding by the rules. In what? And in what way? Tell me more about that. Like the crowd. Like the crowd. If they if they if they're like, what are these guys doing? They're gonna let you know. They're gonna yell at you and heckle you and make your life a little bit hard. Yeah, so you're pushing some boundary by being more wussy all of a sudden. Like, people exactly. don't like that, right? I think, so, I mean, this may not be PC nowadays, but I think we always said that further is music for guys who like hard, uh, guys who like hardcore's girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. That's cool. I actually remember I speaking of hardcore stuff, I, I was actually summer in ninety eight, I was actually on tour with Shia Lude still. And Josh called me. And, and that's the first time I heard about, you know, what would be further seems forever. They Josh, Chad, Nick, and I think Chris had gotten together at Josh's mom's house. I think they had met, kind of talked about stuff they wanted to do. And I remember Josh brought it to my attention when I was kind of on my last on my last legs with the other hardcore band I played with Shia Lude in a summer of 98. And then shortly after, you know, we started working on stuff, just backtracking a little bit mm-hmm. to the question of how we, you know, how it yeah, transitioned I mean, from a strong arm to a to further. So in my case, I was, I was still touring with a uh, Shia Lude. Initially it was me and Josh and we, we wanted to do a new band and we like hadn't even thought it was real. Then Matt Fox was like working on guitar parts with us for, mm-hmm. for one song uh, initially, but then, you know, I know he likes to tell the story differently. Like he feels like he got pushed out, but that's not <laughs> the truth. It's not the truth, Matt. What were the, uh, the things you were liking in emo? Like if you had to describe what you liked about emo at that time, what do you remember the, the words or the descriptions you would use of what was cool. Like it's not, you wouldn't say, Oh, it's so heavy. What would you say? How would you navigate practices and compositions um, in trying those things out? I mean, I don't I, think I've ever used that word. Yeah. No, I remember, I remember. I hate labels. <laughs> so I remember when, when I first heard the term emo, it was, it was about that band grip. You remember that band grip? And like people were wearing backpacks and they're like, everyone's crying on the front row. And <laughs> it was like comical, you know, it was like, it was kind of an insult, you know, in, in a way like this is an emo. And I remember even John Bunch, he used to tell us that the first time he heard it was from the guys from sick of it all would call, would say that Sensefield was, Mm-hmm. And he he was like, okay, cool, you know. If Sickerall says it's cool, then even though they were kind of mocking him, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, at first it's kind of like a knee jerk reaction, and I think I still to this day have a knee jerk reaction because uh, I just feel like there's a lot of baggage that goes along with it. But no, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah. But post hardcore, you do feel is accurate. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Whatever, man. I I'm kind of at the but yeah. We used to be like post hardcore mm-hmm. indie rock, right? Mm-hmm. I remember the I, first I think... time I I saw the word emo. I have to get this out because I don't think I've ever shared this with anybody. I was <laughs> I was reading a Maximum Rock and Roll that old uh, zine magazine, and there was a picture of a singer on his hands and knees, holding his head in his hands. <laughs> and I remember it said emo. That's the first time I'd ever seen the word emo. And it was actually years before this. It's just on a side note. But I remember I remember seeing or reading that term for the first time, and, and as far as I went, from an issue of Maximum Rock and Roll, just, just for, for reference. But go ahead. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. It brought yeah, back a weird I, memory of me seeing it, but in any case. Yeah, I mean, my commentary on that is just, I, I think anytime people see um, something happening and they see a common theme or, you know, they want to attach a label to it, right? And and it's just easier to come up with a name and attach it to a bunch of bands 
so people can wrap their head around it. Um, so yeah, I agree with, I mean, I think we never really liked that term emo, even though we're on a, a compilation called the emo diaries. I think it was just, you know, people saw something with all these bands, like a common theme and they wanted to label it. And I think that happens in any, any sort of music scene. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the commonalities of these different bands were, Taking, they were taking a lot of the ethos and the energy of these hardcore bands, and then bringing that into a totally different uh, music style. And, and people yeah. saw that, and they saw that commonality, so they wanted to try and label it or, or you know, put a wrapper around it. No it's doubt about it. Sense. And and Deep Elm really made a lot of hay with the emo diaries and the term. So that's where I encountered it was exactly right there. Yeah. Um, yep. D- Deep Elm to me was like when I found that, that was one of the first labels that I found that was anything outside of radio rock. And I was just I was just so into it. And th- those emo diaries were my first way into finding you know underground music at, at all right at that time. Um, and I just I just think it's so great. What do you think, Matt? I mean, you deal with it with Emory, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't care. I mean, you know, I like the the whole notion of things of labeling itself and the name of this podcast is like that's all just a play on 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 that whole thing. I think just mm-hmm. um, even just to the degree with which we label people or uh, um, kids that are different um, and stuff like that is just kind of. I think that whole territory is really fascinating. Like everybody is always trying to avoid being labeled i mean but yet there's this time when there's these record labels and everybody wants to be affiliated with a certain label and then they don't you know i just think that whole territory of being of is fascinating so i just if anybody asks me about emory i just say we're christian screamo because that's the like the lamest thing like just go ahead and get that just let it let it be what it is you know so i don't really resist it um in that way but i did um you know i really was attracted to the term emo at the where I was in my development when I first encountered it, but that literally was the first um, independent underground music I ever even understood or internalized or, or knew what it was. Um, and you guys were right there. I mean, you guys are one of the first bands that I ever encountered that wasn't on the radio. Like, and it was right right at 2001 or two, it was 2000, 2001. I mean, it's the moon is down basically. So further seems forever the moon is down box set vinyl is now available on the tooth and nail store man we are excited to have this out uh everybody at the label and everybody in the band has been working really hard on this for many months and it is finally available for pre-order uh so go check it out on the label store the band's actually sold out earlier this week so you can go over and check the labeled store uh for the remaining copies we have a cloudy clear variant uh it just turned out super well so it's mainly featuring an 80-page hardcover book with the oral history of the making of this record. Uh, It's remastered, a ton of extra new artwork from Ryan Clark, and just a a lot of little pieces that if you love this record, you will just for sure enjoy. So please go over to the label store and check this out and pre-order it. In the meantime, continue enjoying this episode. It's just awesome uh, that we got these guys for so long and that we get to celebrate this record that means so much to everybody so thank you for supporting the band and enjoy the rest of the episode that's where i want to get to next i wrote i wrote down deep elm take hold tooth and nail uh, we still got to talk about chris m- getting in the mix here so take me through um deep elm your relationship with deep elm how you met them chad 
take hold, Chris, and all the way to tooth and nail. I'll, I'll shut up. I just want to hear that story from your point of view as you guys reflect on it. I think, I think the story with Deep Elm is just, um, you know, we almost, you know, we almost uh, signed with Deep, Deep Elm. You know, they, um, John from Deep Elm was interested in, in putting the record out and we were seriously considering, you know, working with him, but ended up um, going to tooth and nail. And this was, I think right after we did the emo diaries or we submitted our song for the emo diaries comp. But um, yeah, so that's the connection there. Um, And yeah, I don't know if Chad or Steve want to comment on that at all, but yeah, I think it was, it was just, we were almost on that label, but we chose not to, to move forward. Yeah. I think, you know, I think it was interesting. It was an interesting time because strong arm was obviously on tooth nail and solid state. And, um, you know, we were very pigeonholed in the whole Christian thing, which we don't care. We, we don't mind. Strong arm was a ministry and that's what it was, you know? Um, but with further, uh, we didn't want it to all just be about being Christians, you know? Um, and we wanted to kind of see what other labels had to offer, you know? And we, we recorded a demo um, in Miami and, um, you know, we sent the demo to every label that we could think of, you know, Vagrant and Doghouse and Equal Vision and Trust Kill and, and uh deep Ellum and sub pop and you know the list goes on um but the truth was is not a lot of them i don't think we got any response back aside from deep Ellum and tooth and nail so deep Ellum to us like at that time it was it was it, it was the devil you know or or you know the the grass is greener on the other side so we kind of went through that uh, deliberation like what what do we want to do what what can these labels offer us and we just you know at the time bill power was our a and r guy was our a and r guy and friend from from tooth and nail and i had sent it and he was and he was into exactly the same stuff that we were and he really really liked what we were doing and that was that was a big thing for us yeah, Billy's amazing. He's a very important, very important figure in the whole scene. I think. Absolutely. And, but you, power. you, you uh, also released some, the split on Take Hold as well in that time period. Yeah. So, um, you know, stop me if I'm hogging this, but uh, yeah, Chad um, was a fan of Strongarm, uh, and he, uh, Chad Johnson, he he ran uh, Take Hold or started it and um he was down in he was like north florida i think he lived for a while right steve i think so and it comes to call think right yeah i think he was he was working with this band that we were friends with from down here called recess theory and i and he just approached us he was like oh the strong arm guys are doing a new band i don't think he had even heard us and he's just like yeah i want to do a split with you guys it's like it didn't even matter what we were going to do and we were like okay awesome you know
I think we were just like game for anything back then. And, you know, lo and behold, we came to, to, to know Chad and he, he's a great guy and later became our A&R guy at Tooth and Mill. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so he put that out. That's great. And so and we missed the artwork. I missed the, you know, any thoughts you have on Chris joining and how that interface with the strong arm type of composition plus plus putting his vocals on that. When do you have any memories of that starting to come together? Um and I don't really I don't know how uh you know, I don't know the story of, of getting with him in the first place other than he was in the scene. Yeah, so I'll give my my thoughts on that. I think Chris we knew from um playing together. He was in a band called the Bacon Andes. Strongarm had played with the Vacant Andes like a bunch of different times. So we were really good friends with him. We knew he was a great singer. He had really good energy. He was, you know, definitely tracking with us, you know, thought the same, you know, same musical taste. So I think for me, from what I remember, he was immediately one of the first people we thought of when we thought about having, a, you know, a, someone who could sing melodically with us in, in what we wanted to do. And I think it just kind of worked out really just well. It's not like we went through this whole process of trying out all these different singers. We just kind of casually, you know, asked Chris if he would be interested in working with us. And, and it just happened really, just clicked, I think. What, yeah. what, do, you, what do you remember, Chad? I, I mean, I think it's important to note that, you know, we never really think of the band as like a business. Like, like our days we we spent all our time together just hanging out and doing funny stuff and just being friends like being kids for for a long time you know um so and you know when it came to finding someone who can like you know fulfill the singing thing it was important that there was somebody obviously that could could sing well but mostly it was that someone we can like laugh and like have a good time with and have be friends with. And we knew Chris from, you know, we sh shared moments at shows, you know, with all the vacant Andy guys. And so it kind of worked out like that, like, like what the songs were going to sound like was kind of like a afterthought in a way. Um, so that, I mean, that that's just my take on it so that's part of it is just being that you were compatible people and then the music turned out the way that it did and then what happened just happened um in that way but i can't help but be so jealous of what that discovery process must have been like in the months leading up to before you you know tracked or recorded the album because you would have been yeah. playing riffs with your friends here that you know from Strong Arm, <laughs> and you have that rhythm already, and you already, ha you know, you already have the shared language for the songs, and then you get—I mean, you get Chris in there. So there had to just be these moments where you start to get a glimpse of what this might be, and those moments Absolutely. are the ones I'm most jealous of. Like, what were those? Well, I, I mean, I know, like, so there was a long time from when we decided we were going to do the record with tooth nail and signed a contract with them until like, we actually went to track the record. Like, I think it might've been like a year. Like there's this famous uh, voicemail that Bill Powers sent us. That was like, when's y'all shit going to come out? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but basically 
um, I think it was a little bit, I think it was difficult for, for Chris because everybody was like, we all knew each other, like how we play and like we were close friends and stuff. So it was definitely like a, um, he was trying to get to know and Chris was the guy, he wrote his own songs and like, so there's a little bit of like, okay, how am I going to do this? Like these, these songs are so weird. I mean, if you're asking us about time signatures and things like that, I, I think to this day, we were like, I don't know, you know, but um, there, we always like strive to make the music interesting. And in that process, it makes it very hard for a singer to put melody and rhythm to things. Mm -hmm. And so there was a big monumental task that I don't think I could, I appreciated at the time. I don't know about you guys. But until Chris started working his lyrics into songs and like, then I was like, wow, that's really difficult. And, but it seemed so natural at the same time, you know, and I'm sure Chris has his own take on things, but um, what the dedication that he had to making something really good as a parent as opposed to just okay was apparent in the process well that's the the most magical thing about it that stuck with me that i i, I internalized really quickly was it's so technical but if you don't pay attention to that it's so catchy and it's you don't notice it's technical unless you pay a little bit of attention like it doesn't come across like math rock or anything and it's like every level that you investigate the moon is down and that music you will find intricacy and detail and if you zoom all the way out you're just absorbed in the the melodic delivery of what sounds like a completely normal song and the more you pay attention the more you get out of it and it's like these technical things that are then, and it's weird because I, I imagine that they come together backwards where they are, like you're saying there, they are technical, they are weird, and then you have to do the really hard work to to tie it back together so it no longer seems super technical. So yeah. that's that's just magic to me. I think that's like a foundation and the key to as what what has made um, your band so influential. And it, I mean, there's just like that can't be overstated how influential that is. Well, I appreciate I mean, yeah, I mean, thank you. I'm trying to work on receiving that. Uh, at least my wife's like, hey, you need to receive things better. So I appreciate it. No, it's uh, very, very sincere. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a profoundly influential on at least me personally. And I, I mean, you know, I've ne there's no shortage well, of people that would say it the I same mean, way. I mean, I'll say this, like, like Josh. So a lot, Josh is a big part of that. Like, I, I think every band has, or at least good bands have, have a guy that kind of operates on maybe a little bit different frequency and, Steve, when Steve and Josh get together and work through a part, it adds a lot of layers to it. And a, a lot of times, like if we write something and we really are like, oh, this isn't that good, we'll just never come back to it. We just throw stuff away. But like we were just talking about this, Nick, uh, last week, 
was like the song the bradley we named it the bradley because it's like there's this movie a long time ago with uh chelsea grammar and um uh kelsey grammar chelsea grammar kelsey grammar and uh where it's all about how the the u.s government spends like this a massive amount of money working on the uh the bradley tank for the U.S. Army, and they just keep adding like the most ridiculous things to it, you know, and it just drives the cost up. And that's kind of like what we did, and that's kind of like what our songwriting process is. Like we just keep adding, even though like it probably didn't need it, but it was just something else. And, and then it, it, and you add the vocal, you know, and it just, it just like kind of all came together at the end. But yeah, like Steve have, has has like, Steve brought brings a definite different element, and it, it's it's just it's cool for me though to watch, and it, it inspires me to have ideas too. So. Yeah, Josh's writing and my playing, but Josh's writing is a, it's so transitional. There's so much movement to it. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of subtle layers. And what's amazing about Chris is, which was kind of already mentioned, is that just such a great ability to bring it all together, like to take this, what otherwise would be complex shell and just compartmentalize it, like just, you know, like hooky or just, making memorable choruses and, 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 you know, parts for people to sing along to in an otherwise palette of, you know, a lot of subtle layers. So, yeah, it is interesting how, you know, those two things kind of came together naturally, eventually naturally. Well, so, I think uh, that's true about cool. things like film, like that are really good or a story or a series where it's just like the level, the layers, you guys have both said layers there. There's so many that whichever one you decide to pay attention to will be rewarding to the viewer versus a superficial thing. And so that I get that from it. And you'll probably hate this comparison, but I felt I, I was come from the place I was coming from. Um, I think Tool was similar in that way, where it'd be weird stuff, but then the, it must have been it must be hard to be that vocalist and try to tie things together. But oh, so rewarding when you get the right combination. Well, I think I remember telling you this when you had me on uh, some months back. You know, notice that you know part of the song, and that's when I feel we've done our job. We can write material that keeps actually pro pro not progressing, but keeps evolving to the listener. That's that's amazing. Oh, absolutely. I can listen now and find more and more, more and more stuff. Um, let's discuss the capture of, of the album itself with Wisner or, or that process. What comes to mind about, about the, uh, I imagine you had it all worked out really good in a room. What was the capture process like? Well, it's, it's really interesting because, uh, James was, so he was kind of the South Florida guy that, that like put out really awesome recordings for uh you know some of the bands that were around like he did newfound glory and he did you know i'm talking about early on that were you know and i think the bacon andes went to him and stuff um as friends rust and like bands like that um but 
he's just he was just so passionate and like had a lot to say about about like making music in a way that we've never seen before like it wasn't that we haven't really worked with producers to say you know before that so but when we met james and we did um the the um take hold split with him uh initially it was just awesome but the thing that i always remember about it was james lived in a very small one bedroom apartment where we recorded the record and it's like uh like he soundproofed his his closet and his you know for a vocal booth and you know it was just the his whole apartment was just dedicated to recording and he had like some b-rate like, like pro tools like generic rig I, I don't even know yeah was it a uh, computer based pro tools thing and it two, was and, i mean it must have been the very earliest stuff that people were doing that, doing that kind of thing it wasn't even pro tools it was something else i know he could uh he, I, I know he would obviously know but um yeah i just remember it being like it was it was definitely interesting uh I remember his cat a lot, and uh, <laughs> didn't we didn't we play live by the way for that? For no, no, time? we did that for the demo that oh, we did. Okay. Yeah, the one that we did in Miami at the the dungeon there. Where did Jamie you track the ball. drums? In his we apartment. In his apartment. No, yep. no, we didn't track the drums yep. in his apartment. No, we did it at the dungeon. We tracked the drums. I know he did something in his apartment. I think he had, he had me sectioned off, but yeah, there was also Jeremy. There was also Jeremy Dubois at the dungeon. I thought the dungeon was the, uh, that kind of, we did a couple songs and then we wound up doing them again, obviously for the moon is down. I thought the dungeon was that pre moon is down. It was, but I think we ended up tracking the drums there. Okay. I you probably know, know better. I'm always foggy yeah. timing wise with that kind of stuff. So <laughs> timeline wise. So either way, yeah. the recording right. is just so good. I mean, you don't you don't get this apartment recording vibe from it. That's doesn't come through <laughs> at, all, <laughs> at all. No, I was just gonna say I think part of the magic of James too is, you know, he he's producing your record, but it doesn't feel like he's producing it. You know, he's there, he's engineering it, recording it. And then he's just subtly kind of, you know, making these suggestions and introducing these new ideas and it, and they all just kind of fit. And it wasn't overbearing. It was very, you know, it was very natural. And, and I think he had this really, this uncanny ability to, to kind of read us and understand what we wanted to do and where we wanted to go and everything that he suggested to us and, and, just really fit into the sound and what we wanted to do with the record. And he's just really good at doing that. I think um, that's one of his superpowers as a engineer and a producer, you know, well, he's been able to capture some things that resonate with this particular audience and crowd of tooth and nail and stuff, especially in a way that just, it's, it's really hard to, to account for really. I mean, um, 238 and then under oath, oh, yeah. you know, like, yeah, and how he, and is he, that possible that one guy gets those three and nails? And he's, that? You know, like all great engineers and produ- he's developed his own sound. Like if you think of what he think about somebody like Mark Trombino 
or uh, Steve Hagel, uh, you know, these uh, Don Fury in the hardcore scene, these, these engineers and producers that you can listen to one of their records and you just know that it's, it's a Don Fury record or it's a James Wisner record or it's a Mark Trombino record. Those are the really good producers and engineers that can do that, you know, um, put their yeah. stamp by on the way, recording. James is a great musician too himself. So yeah. piggybacking off Nick, he did unlock a lot of stuff for us and, and, and what he sensed, what we were trying to get out. And I think having yeah. a musical sense as a musician probably helped that too. Yeah, I think that was key. Like he didn't, he wasn't trying to tell us what we should be. He was trying to bring out the best of what we are, you know? Well, it's just uh, it's just too hard to imagine. Like it's a nothing budget. There's nothing fancy about it. It's not Hollywood. It's not L.A. or New York. And it's none of that stuff. It's just a very insane concentration of refined talent in a apartment. That's on a record that completely holds up and is legendary and influential. You've got Chris on it, you guys, and a producer. It just and it's done with. I mean, how much did it cost to make that? Nothing. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, very very little <laughs> compared to today. You know, I, a couple like last year, I drove by the apartment. And I'm just I'm, I'm telling my kid, I'm like, you know, we record that record. <laughs> like that's crazy. You know, like we used to, he lived like, it was like a second floor and like, I think we would jump off the balcony, like just, you know, it was just weird. <laughs> it was just really interesting. And and you but said awesome. it before about kids just hanging around, hanging out, like it's, it's a hangout situation where there's screw ups and goof offs and weird people doing their weird thing together. And then something like that can come out of that with no... Mm-hmm really adult supervision i know you're adults but you know what i mean it's like it's it is kid stuff you were doing yeah. kid stuff right oh man we were just we're i mean i think there's something when you get into the studio you're just like okay we're gonna be here for a while let's make you know you know you're like a bored kid like he <laughs> i have a i have a memory of when we were doing the strong arm the first record like brandon evil like he was very militant about coming he had to be there i have to come and he came and he played galaga the whole time like we're like hey you want to listen to this mix and he's like oh, i'm playing galaga i can respect that yeah <laughs> it was, it's all kid stuff i mean there's nothing it's, it's like oh kid evil, but he was also the on the record yeah he did yeah. pilot vocals on the strong arm record so at least oh that's awesome yeah he likes to sneak in on some guest vocals mm-hmm. and he's got a few of those kind, gives, kind of things around some clout gives him some clout a lot of studios have a pinball machine having to be in a scene yeah yeah, yeah. The cameos that's right but it but it just the whole thing feels like it's all it's like kid oh it's for the kids but we're it is kids yeah. to do it or put on the shows or record the stuff yeah, exactly. or just make put out the records or play is video games and kids i mean it's just well, the, yeah, I mean, I'll say James was, he was like, you know, when you're over there, he wanted to be down to business, you know, he didn't want to, I mean, he, we had a lot of fun laughs and things like that, but like, I remember when we record, when 238 was recording their record there, we went, we went over there and, and they were just like, hey, we need to do backups here, Chris, get in there and do backups, so he ended up doing that, you know, it was just like, whatever whatever it took kind of thing you know 
but it was just just a lot of fun always you know i mean you gotta have fun when you're doing it you know yeah that is very very cool and so you guys were close with 238 yeah um i think so uh it's interesting because um you know we we ended up taking them out on tour a little bit later and uh i haven't talked to them in in a long time but i actually got an email from kevin who's the guitar player who actually works for the same company that i work for and it was, and he saw my name he's like how many chad neptunes could there be wow <laughs> you know just well, like what, a different if department. you don't mind what do you, what do you and he do what's that company what do y'all do now uh i do user experience design or i'm uh, actually a, a, a product designer and yeah and he i think he was a designer of some some kind but he yeah i mean he's up there in seattle where you are Very yeah cool. i know uh, chris and jake really well i was in a band with jake yeah. and actually oh, yeah. when i lived in tennessee i me and chris staples actually wrote some songs uh one winter I don't know if they ever saw the light of day. Pretty cool songs, actually. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, they're uh, they're really creative, great guys too. Yeah, yeah, legendary uh, records that they've made. You know, there too from, you know, that hotbed of place and talent and all that. So I think that's amazing. <laughs> um, the how long did it take to record? That I, I just I want to say three weeks, maybe. Does that sound right, guys? That's all you. <laughs> yeah, I have a terrible memory. So yeah, I have a terrible memory with that kind of stuff too. <laughs> yeah, I know it was quick. It wasn't like a long drawn out process, you know. Right. So, did you know what it when you as it that was being completed? You're the first people hearing that go down to the computer and come back out of those speakers. Was it apparent to you at all what that was? Uh, no. Uh, well, it, it so. There wasn't vocals, so I so Chris didn't actually do vocals until he was he had actually left the band. Um, so we didn't hear any of the vocals really. Um, and I, I mean, I knew what we were doing was was good, but I, I remember thinking like, I don't know, is this what I what was going around in my head you know um and then until i saw chris at a party and he had a rough of wearing thin i think and he was like hey check this out you know and i was like okay okay (laughs) but it's very hard to tell without the yeah i think it was a little bit of a mystery you know i think we all were really happy with what we did with James, but exactly like Chad said there, you know, we had no vocals. And I think part of what makes that record so good is, you know, Chris and James pretty much worked on the vocals on their own. You know, we weren't there. We weren't a part of that process at all. And I think having that space is part of what makes his vocals on a record so good because he had a lot of, you know, time to himself and, and, you know, dedicated time with James to work on that. So my t- my takeaway from that would be the fact that if you really were having to compose that music without vocals, then um, and that can be 
that can go the other way where it doesn't work. But the the idea is that you had to make the music killer without even knowing the vocals. You knew it had to be as like every moment had to be exciting. Yeah, we knew the songs. We knew uh, like we played the songs live and everything except for New Desert Life. And that yeah. that's a whole different story. So we knew what they should sound like, but when while it was being recorded and we're hearing it back through the speakers, we didn't necessarily know how they were going to end up. Because as you know, like there's there's certain songs like when you're writing it and you're playing it live with everyone, you're like, this is this is the song, this is the song, you know. And then you record it and you're like, this is not the song, this is not the song. And then there's songs that you wouldn't have thought that end up, you're like, oh, wow, that really became a great song. Yeah. And when I say when I say mystery, I mean, like, we didn't know how these songs were going to translate into a recording from playing live. Because playing live, there's, like Chad said, there's this energy and it's a totally different feel. And I think the mystery and the question was, how are these songs going to translate into a recording, into a record? So yeah. all the songs uh, minus uh, New Desert had you had experienced them and worked them out in live settings. Okay, so that that in itself is something that doesn't always happen, especially in modern days. It's like oh, you write these songs, you put them in the studio. So it, you had had the experience of them being put together in rooms where they were. Working. Yeah, and and like our our process of writing songs is, I, I think it's very backwards from from what. I see from other bands like uh, like those were every song that we had. We didn't have like other songs and like other ideas and like this one didn't make the cut and that one didn't make the cut. These were the songs all the way to when we we're tracking drums, like we had the the bones of New Desert Life and we were like we know this is going to be a good song and and just finish the song right there like in the ninth hour basically this is where the water becomes shallow nothing here is quite as deep as you hoped it would be and uh or 11th what's the saying 11th hour ninth inning you know but uh (laughs) Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that was the only one that we, we were just like, I don't know who, who knows what this song's going to end up being, but we knew it was something we knew we had to do it because as it was, we were like, Oh, this album is going to be really short if we don't like finish this last thing. So, so you get this album done and you could have no idea what impact it would have nor could you understand probably the the that it it you know this album really notates a shift in the whole scene from this uh i mean of course it was hardcore but like punk and pop punk into this new sound you, to what degree this record is what ushers in the new change you know, could be argued, but it's at least the moment where, like, for instance, the label Tooth and Nail itself shifts into this the, its new sound, and the the genre that c- comes at least out of it explodes. So you couldn't have known that what was underway in two thousand one that the commercialization that was going to be possible in the coming no, months and I, years. 
No, absolutely not. I mean, if you would have asked, we were just ecstatic. Someone wanted to pay to to record our record. You know, um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know. We've seen other bands have some success. Like around that time, Juliana Theory was having a right. lot of success on Tooth and Nail, and we, we you know, the Brett uh, had a similar story. Was you know in a hardcore band and. I mean, they they mm-hmm. have a look, they have a different sound than we do, but um, you know, there were other bands that that uh, you know we see. We're like, wow, these bands like are starting to get big, like Death Cab for Cutie, and you know, and like, but it wasn't something that we really thought was obtainable, you know. And that was one of the things about the about you know why Chris ended up um, going in his own direction was we just didn't really know how serious we wanted to take the band. You know? That's tragic uh, almost when I he- heard you yeah. say that about like he came in after and did the vocals and was already done with the band by the time, like mm-hmm. my gosh, like that's the, that's a really fundamental thing. I mean, I, I can't help but use the word tragic about that in some sense as a fan um, that, you know, by the time I heard about, by the time we all heard about this, it already was over. So that just like built into, wait, there's this mind expanding, genre bending, whole fresh new territory and the best band in it is already done before they st- started? Like that, well, that's I mean, fundamentally we, we, crazy. We planned it that way. It built on the stick. You know? <laughs> it did something. <laughs> it did something. I mean, yeah, I mean, it sucked to live through it. You know, I, it wasn't, it wasn't a fun time. You know, uh, it, it was like you felt like you had this this thing that you'd work really hard for and the wheels fell off before you even get it on the track. But it, it's really amazing that 20 plus years we're talking about this with you right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I would have never thought that, would you guys? No, definitely not. I think well, it was... a a really hard time you were you know you were experiencing that way and and reflect yeah. still back on it that that was a really tough time i think i think we were talking about nick, nick uh recently um with the rest of the guys like i think what made the record what it was in the band what it was at that time was each of us were going through our own like growing pains and in our like own turmoils, like, you know, outside the band, you know, that, uh, that we brought this mix in together and we formed together. And so that's why our bond is still strong to this day, I think. Yeah, I think, I mean, we were all really young still too, right? And we were at this weird age where you're not a teenager. You're not a full-grown adult. You're in this like weird in-between time, and you know, like Chad said, there's definitely a lot of turmoil outside of the band happening in all our lives. And uh, I think it was the weird thing was it, it made the band really hard, but it also made recording that record and playing in the band this really nice refuge because I think for me at least, I don't know about anyone else, it was a place where I could go. And, you know, kind of almost as cliche as it sounds, get away, you know, from all the other chaos that was happening around me at the time. And it was like a, a place I could go and, and kind of forget about everything else that's going on and just 
write this record, write these songs, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was hard for a lot of different reasons, you know, just not even internally within the band as well. Mm -hmm. Steve, what do you remember from that difficult period? Yeah. Everybody had stuff going on outside the band families and kids and wives and, you know, work and the dilemma of, you know, is it possible to do this on a, on a huger scale time-wise touring that kind of thing. I was probably more within the Chris camp at the time. My mindset was let's do it, you know, like everything and anything that's beneficial. But at the same time, you know, I didn't have as many responsibilities family wise because I don't, I didn't have kids and I uh, wasn't married yet at that point. So, um, and, you know, you can only imagine, you know, with young children and, and already careers in, uh, in other fields, you know, that's a, you know, obviously that's a crazy balancing act and you mm-hmm. got to get to a point where you choose when it comes to like the, the potential touring end of, of a band. And yeah, we didn't really know where it was going to go. I guess to answer that question, like, you know, definitely like 20 years later, you know, seemingly how influential the album's been. We definitely wasn't our mindset at the time. We were definitely happy with what we did. We knew we had something that was original and uh, to an extent. And, um, you know, Chris was, uh, you know, obviously a writer, he's writing other music. He had other stuff going on, but you know, that, um, he had time for as well. And, uh, just kind of is what it is. As the saying goes at the time, it just didn't quite work out on a, on the scale that, uh, personally I would have liked to have seen, but there's no right or wrong to it. It's, you know, it's, that's just the way it went at the time, but in the bigger picture, it solidified our friendships and our camaraderie together for a lifetime, uh, that we're mm-hmm. still, involved in any way shape or form with it now so it's uh you know so it's kind of cool thinking about it that way but yeah i was just gonna say i think that speaks to earlier you know what one of us said where you know making sure that there was you know that we liked each other as people first to that came first more than like i want to find the best drummer in the world or whatever you know i think that Uh, priority or you know thinking about that is almost like the foundation that has like lasted and you know the fact that you know we're all still friends and we're still all in each other's lives I think that's what contributed to that you know so I think that's important to note as well yeah I think so and I just I want to say thank you guys for you know exploring that and 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 talking through that a little bit it is i think it's quite meaningful um and you guys the record just you know it took off and even if though you weren't um you know i don't know what those years were like um but you were able to to move on from there and still accomplish a tremendous amount after that which is a testament as well so you know we've cut we've covered the moon is down and congratulations on that and its anniversary and everything else but if we could spend a few more minutes um going to you know do some other things beyond the moon is down i really do appreciate um going into that to the detail that we have sure um thank you 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 had a corner you had cornerstone experiences uh, um then right well did you do a cornerstone that right around that time that was yeah, so- memorable yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, so Cornerstone was interesting, and like as a festival, it was very pivotal pivotal for me, because that's where um, my my sister brought me there, my 
uh, first time in 92, I think. Wow. And I, um, I was like, oh my gosh, there's like actually people who can be Christians and be open about it. And they're not like super cheesy, you know, and actually like the same kind of music that I do. Um, that was a big eye opener. So, and, and then from the years after that, like I have a, like a great memory of Steve, like he wasn't in the band. He just, we went up to Cornerstone and just hung out together. And I remember Steve playing drums on pots and pans at our campground and like us being like, Oh my gosh, you see this guy playing. He's, he's insane. Like he's an insane drummer, you know? Um, so like there's it in like, I just like, I think like some of those times, like I've never laughed so hard in my life, like, like, you know, and, and never been so miserable at the same time camping out. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's how we uh, met tooth and nail basically too, you know, at, at Cornerstone and uh, strong arm. The first thing they, you know, like focused and unashamed and the other hardcore bands overcome um pod and and um just like there's just a ton of bands blenderhead and mxpx and they, all at around that time all those bands would converge on cornerstone and it was a real special time because it wasn't like festivals now where the bands are like separated from the people like everyone just like hung out together like a real hangout like not just like a catering or something you know and um so the, I, I think i owe a lot to that festival you know and uh so naturally when further became a band you know we uh there was a, a lot of buzz going around about us and we ended up playing um playing there two days the tooth and nail day um and then the actual festival and um yeah, I mean, it was, you know, that that was definitely a highlight of our of our year for sure. And we what we played Cornerstone with Chris too. Yeah, Did that's we? what I was saying with Chris. Yeah, with Chris, and, and and I remember he had started doing dashboard, um, and I think that might have been like one of the first shows that he ever played. Like we, uh, you know, it's like, hey, co you know, you should like play some of that that acoustic music you know like play play your stuff man at this tent you could just get up and play and he's like okay and like there's a big buzz like he got like a really you know people loved it you know i'm sure he has a different view of that but like for me it was just we always as strong arm we would try to play the impromptu stage at the skateboard ramp all, as much as we could you know and um and I met a lot, you know, a lot of people that I'm still friendly with today at, at Cornerstone. But yeah, so so we played with Chris. Um, I think we played with 238 that that year, like the same times, um, some other bands. But um, I mean, that was always a highlight for sure. That's really awesome. Let's take this opportunity and um, and and find out what you guys feel are really important or your favorite uh, songs in the Tooth & Nail catalog. You can each have one. I'm, I guess I've done it with Steve before, but do you guys each have 
um, something that you feel like is in the Tooth and Nail catalog that's particularly meaningful to you? I mean, I love uh, that 230. I mean, just talking about 238, but that record, Regulate the Chemicals, is one of I still love that record like immensely. So tired, you sleep with a lot of with stereo blasting in it, you know you're tired when your senses fail. You know, I, I there's different errors for me, you know, like uh, Valor sticks out, right? Um, and then there's that's the why hard, that's in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then Never there's then there's, it's such a great yeah. record. And then like the hardcore stuff, like you know, bloodshed and unashamed and focused and uh, you know overcome. Like you know that was a whole nother era. You know, and then you know blenderhead and roadside monument. I mean, I could just keep going. Obviously, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. That's great. Right. How about you, Nick? What's special to you in the catalog? Uh, I yeah, it's, I mean the same. You know, we uh, I loved Starflyer '59. I loved all those records. Uh, Valor was a great band. Um, a huge amount of respect for uh, 238. That record, Regulate the Chemicals, was uh, yeah, it, that was a masterpiece. You know that I, I remember listening to that record actually before we recorded the moon is down and just yeah really really impressed with with all that stuff i think all those early tooth and nail bands uh the magic was just all these different i mean you think about a band like starflyer and then you know focused you know the ability to put all these bands out together on one label um that was pretty unique at the time really and i think that was the big draw to what tooth and nail was doing and and just doing it really well too, you know, Tooth and L was at uh, just putting these records out at a really high level, you know, and I, I think a lot of people noticed that and took notice and, and they were drawn to that. Yeah. I mean, it, something else like uh, that I wanted to touch on that you touched on earlier, Matt was like the sense of feeling like belonging like, I think a lot of record labels, like, around that time, like, bands really, like, associated to them, like, Revelation, like, you know, you'd see bands, like, printing merch with, like, the record label's name, like, printed, like, down the sleeve, like, you know, for no reason, like, that's, like, nowadays, that's really weird, like, would you see a band put, put like, a record label, mm-hmm. you know, so there was this real sense of, like, okay, I'm, I'm part of something like I'm part of this, you know, and it yeah, says something I, about it. Totally. And, and you think about the time, I think we take it for granted today, right? You go online and you can literally discover any, any band from any era at any time at the tip of your finger at, you know, instantly, you know, this is still the mid nineties. Like the internet wasn't a thing. And I think a lot of, um, kids in the scene like trusted labels like Mm -hmm. you know anything on rev or revelation records was going to be really good anything on doghouse records was going to be really good anything on sub pop everyone kind of gravitated to to the label discord the same thing you know you kind of trusted these labels because you just didn't get access to these bands right like you couldn't go online you couldn't go on spotify and and your money any record you Right. So I think yeah, I remember being that way with like with Touch and Go, Matador, yeah, all those 
labels. Yep. Yeah, and I think Tooth and Nail became one of those labels for a, a certain scene of kids where they just trusted the label and it became like part of, I don't want to say part of their identity, but it was just one of those things where like, I love all the tooth and nail bands, just like I love all the Discord bands or whatever mm-hmm. label you kind of attached yourself to, you know? Well, we're in, we're in a totally different era now where a Brandon Ebel has been replaced by an algorithm that suggests what to you like that it used to be you would trust him or them or billy power or whatever label like the label itself was the thing that made the suggestions to you and now it is a algorithm and my daily mix number five is pretty good i'll have to admit that it is good (laughs) you know but it's there's something different about that and so you know these labels were um, the earliest things of, you know, suggestion engines and, and so so to speak, that were kind of crowdsourced yeah. from a community that had values and stuff like that. So I'm not knocking what's current, but, you know, it's it's interesting to trace that that history to where we are today. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I got some questions from the Facebook group um, as well. So these are going to be a little bit more random. And we again, we're skipping basically the whole next record next couple of records you made with different singers that's just another conversations for other times I, you know the way i look at that but um somebody asked this nice simple question that i, I liked a lot what's your favorite new york city memory of playing a show or doing something in new york city i thought that was romantically nice oh man Seeing Rick Ocasek in the comic book store. That was, oh, pretty that, was pretty, that was pretty awesome. And all of us like kind of starstruck and being too nervous to go up to him. Well, I remember seeing seeing him and, and like being like, that's someone famous. Who is that? I know who that is. Is that a Ramon? Like, this is all going on in my head. And then I look at Derek and I'm like, that's Rick Ocasek. Wow. And I, and I go into the record store. He's in our video game store. He's in there with his kid. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, are you Rick Ocasek? He's like, yes, I am. I'm like, I just want to say, uh, I really love your music and your producing. Thank you. And, and if people uh, don't know, that's from the Cars, and he produced cars, Pinkerton, right? He produced Pinkerton. He produced Bad Brains. Uh, yeah. But wow. uh, I don't know if that's my favorite memory, but it's a good one. I think my... I think a good one was a show that we didn't play because we got blizzarded out, right? That, it, that's what I was going to say. It's funny this question would be asked because my Facebook yeah. memory, speaking of Facebook, was Gramercy Theater. Me and Chad, Chad had like a coffee in his hands, and I pointed to the marquee that we were under. We actually showed up, but the show got canceled because of Winter Storm Nemo. Yeah. It was such a weird yeah. moment. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And that, that I mean, showed up on my Facebook memory like yesterday. So. Yeah, and this isn't an exact New York City, but I think it's, I mean, the fact that we were supposed to play Long Island and 9-11 happened and we literally had to shut down our whole entire tour. That oh yeah. It's not a favorite memory, but it's definitely definitely a memory that sticks out, which is that's a good, pretty wild. That's a good one, yeah. yeah. Oh, we, were, we were actually staying in a town that was one town over from where the one plane yeah. went down that the passengers took at, over in Pennsylvania. At Marty's house. Marty. Mark from Zillow. Yeah. Mark Lund. Marty Lund? Yeah. Marty Lund. The yeah. one and only. Yeah. Marty party. Um, but uh, 
also when Chris was still in the band, we were supposed to play New York or we were playing Long Island and we like we got there early for some reason. We went by the promoter's house and it was just some it was just some kid like at his parents' house and we pulled up. He's like <laughs> and he comes in, he's like, What are you guys doing here? He's like, You gotta go. You can't you can't be here. And we're like, what do we do? Like we couldn't afford like a hotel. So we like just found a parking lot and like slept and it was so hot. And I remember waking up in the morning and it was just so hot. We didn't have any money. We couldn't afford to do anything. So we went to like a public library because they had air conditioning and just slept at the public library. I love that. I love that. What a cool question that New York city. I'm going to ask that one again. Cause everybody is going to have good New York memories yeah. for whatever reason that is. Um, I got uh, Josh Kimball from Dogwood posted in there and said, let's talk about the show at H's Cellar. Does that ring a bell? I don't think we want to talk about uh, that. Jo- <laughs> man, I'm, I can't wait for you to do a Dogwood episode so I can sabotage you, him too. We already did one, but we'll do, uh, we'll do another one. Well, next time, let me uh, ask a question. No, I, yeah, I mean, I remember it. Uh, I don't even know how to approach Strange this. Strange place. <laughs> what was it? I have no idea. What I remember us showing about, up, but... and we had, like, didn't we have, like, cups? There, there were cups. There were cubby, there were cubby holes. <laughs> there were cubby holes with, like, Hershey's miniature. Man, why do I remember this stuff? With all our names on glasses, which is which is really cool, really nice. And I remember H himself, Honoris, I think. And he, um, it was in North Dakota and a very, very, very small town in North Dakota. Like, I think the population might have been like 10, 10 people. <laughs> um, and I remember we were playing uh, baseball with Legends of Rodeo at some park that we found, and and these girls who obviously they they drive by, and they're like, oh, "There's a bunch of guys here that like we that aren't from here, obviously," and they're sitting out there, and they're like, "They're and and." The girl, she looks at me and she goes, hey, you know, my friend, my friend thinks you're black. And I, and I look at her and I'm like, okay, um, I'm not, but what would be wrong with that? And she's like, oh, no, that, no, that's fine if, if you were black. But if you were Mexican, then there would be a problem. <laughs> yeah, so. There also proceeded to be, I think, a guy on a unicycle and a guy driving a car sitting on the wrong side of the car. Like I think no, that was, that was Valparaiso, Indiana. Uh, was, I thought one of those was North Dakota, but it's all blurred. <laughs> so just one of those weird, weird experiences in a weird town and a w- weird thing. Was, was Dogwood there? Or not that I know of. I don't, there. Maybe I, I suppose Dogwood maybe had been through or something. So I'm curious how he, you know, from um, what I mean, he meant by that. The next night, there's a great story. Uh, we were playing South, uh, South Dakota, and it was at his church, and there were like still pews there and everything. 
this is Steve's legendary story, by the way. And uh, we looked and we're just like this. uh, We just did not have a good feeling about playing this place. It was like stuffy. There's like no one that actually would be into the music. Maybe a couple people. But uh, Steve and the drummer for Legends of Rodeo came up with this awesome idea. I'll uh, let Steve say. Did we cover that last time, Steve? And then there a video of that. That I think that video is on YouTube, right? Yeah, yeah, we did do the show. Yeah, me and Jeff know it just finally got to the point it was so uncomfortable that you know, amazingly, we tried to call the cops to stop our own show. <laughs> but there's a there video was, of that we, show we, on YouTube, right? <laughs> we acted yeah, like you know, probably is. We, we were we were like residents in the surrounding neighborhood and that there was a noise ordinance that was being broken. So how about, how about that? Calling the cops on your own show. On your own show. Um, I got at least one more here and Bruce from living sacrifice, um, you know, oh, no. said he, well, no, this is it. This one, he says that he had nothing was his favorite album of you guys. And he asked for, for you to reflect on anything interesting from that. Um, how do you look back on that? He says his personal favorite and he was a big Sensefield fan. Man, I just remember so many good times with John touring, as far as the touring end of it. Um, in particular, Europe. Uh, he's just, you know, he's just such a great guy to be around on tour. It's very fun-loving. And, you know, he was uh, an adventurous soul. But uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, ahead, I'll comment on that record, not being on that record, so I'll comment it from, from the outside. You know, I just remember... Because we were all big Sensefield fans, you know, way back when we were in Strongarm and before. So for me, I remember when I heard that John Bunch was going to do that or join the band, I was hugely just very impressed. And and, uh, I was like, how did did they even score John Bunch from Sensefield? Because I was such a fan of that band. And then when the record came out, I was just jealous that I wasn't a part of that record, you know, because for me, that's, um, th- that's my favorite further record. You know, I won't say it's moon is down. It's definitely hide nothing just because, uh, John, again, like all great singers had this great ability to, um, glue all these songs and all these parts together and, and really pro- build these melodies and do these melodies on top of these it was just a really phenomenal record. I was really, really yeah, just jealous and, and, and impressed at the same time. That, so. That's a cool point of view to get to have the perspective to hear a record from your band, you know, and get to, to have that in that way. And, and, and what a unique uh, point of view. I saw I saw that um, era at Cornerstone. There was a Cornerstone. I think it was main stage Cornerstone. Do you oh, remember? my gosh. That was like the worst <laughs> show ever. That was one of the worst shows we've ever played in <laughs> But mainly because... We had no sound guy, and we just couldn't hear anything. Mm-hmm. Well, just and I, oh. it, it might have been the first show that we played with John, and like we just didn't really know how it was going to gel. And in 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 retrospect, we probably should have not played main stage. It was really hard to hear, and it was it was a disaster. But yeah. Mm-hmm. But like doing hide nothing, like 
it, it, that was another interesting situation because we had all the songs written already and John kind of came into a hard uh, situation. But we knew that if we wanted to keep doing the band, we needed to have someone who could, who had the experience and could just step in and, and like just do it, you know? Um, and John, he he was able to, to really deliver. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, if he was there in the writing process, things may have sounded a little bit different, but he, um, I mean, he's, he's a consummate pro. He's always a sweet and a sweet guy that just really just cared about people. And um, he loved singing and he would do it at all costs um so i think like i'm really proud of that record um and i think like a lot of the a lot of people now are coming around to it at the time it wasn't very well received um and you know it's good that i'm glad that people are enjoying it and i think old guys like bruce from living sacrifice can can appreciate that Mm -hmm. and um you know, and, and I know like touching on what Nick said, like when we first started the band, when we were looking for a singer, like one of the guys we wanted to, we wanted to try to find someone who was like John Bunch. So it's kind of like a full circle moment. Mm -hmm. I think that is true that people continually appreciate that record more and more. And I'm sorry, John is gone. Um, and I think it, I think it's, very awesome also so i appreciate it um i guess got a couple more questions how about the logo the logo is so iconic how did that come about the so that happened by (laughs) that was uh, uh just by accident so we um i kind of really liked this design agency called volume one back in the day we I think we reached out to Matt Owens who ran that agency to do um, the artwork for it. And it was either Matt or his brother, Mark, who just came up with that logo on their own and put it in the album artwork. And I think after that, we just kind of adopted it because uh, I, I, we all just loved it. And, and it was just an, an easy uh, visual to just put on a lot of our merch and a lot of our, you know, the collateral that we did as a band. So um, it just grew into this thing. But yeah, it happened by accident. It was never like a premeditated thing or anything. I I, th- I don't think. Um, no, it, maybe. It, it, yeah, it was like branding before we knew it was branding, right? But it just like we, he did the layout, it showed up and we we're like, oh, cool. I, I, I like that. Cool. That's our thing now. <laughs> Nick also coined... Nick also coined the name of the band. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Give me that one real quick. Where'd that come from? It just came from, you know, we were all you know, writing lyrics, writing songs. I, I was writing some lyrics, and, and one of the songs I think I was working on was called Further Seeming Forever. And I, you know, was talking to Chris. I think we were in the warehouse or something, and I kind of just um, talked to Chris and the rest of the guys. And, and I think Chris came up. He, he said that further seems forever would be a great name for, or someone said further seeming forever would be a good name for the band. And then I think someone changed it to further seems forever. I don't remember who that was, 
but yeah, it just kind of stemmed from this song, these lyrics that I was working, working on at the time. Well, that's very cool. Uh, Dan, uh, somebody named Dan Close asked about the, uh, the logo. And I just thought that was a great question. Um, that's a good what else? question. Yeah, it, it, it is. Let's see if I have a, a lot of the, okay. I got one more. Somebody said there's a story about you guys playing basketball with Five Iron Frenzy. Was that based in reality? Do you in memory of that? I mean, it doesn't sound far fetched, but I don't remember that. <laughs> okay. One of the basketball guys in the band, I, I probably would have remembered that. Yeah, okay. I don't remember playing with those guys. Okay, so that's a bogus legend. Yeah, um, from I think that's a okay. False. Got it. Um, we have a there's a funny basketball story when the Miami Heat uh, when they won the championship. Steve, Steve and I used to play basketball pretty regularly, and we were just playing basketball at the local park here. And this news uh, crew shows up, and they like had us like reenact like like the it was so bad. That was one of the most random things ever. <laughs> so you should have try and track down that, that video night. online. It was like a segment uh, of the news for real. I mean, it, it was yeah. amazing. It wasn't Five Iron Frenzy, but yes. Okay, then I'm almost out of questions, and I'll let you guys go. But I'm just really enjoying this conversation, so I'll squeeze every minute out of it I can. Um. A lot of the questions center around, do you, you know, future plans or anything like that? Is there anything that you could tell us that's for sure or a tease or anything at all? Like, is there anything that? Yeah. I mean, so in, in the immediate future, we're, we're playing Breakfast, which is a festival in, in um, Franklin, where Nick is, and Franklin, Tennessee. And it's with our good friends, Newfound Glory. And be well. And uh, Derek from Mayday Parade is doing a, a bunch of great bands, um, and that's kind of like a no-brainer for us because most of the band lives there, or at least half the band lives there. So that was uh, we were really happy to do that, and to, we're gonna play Moons Down in full. And um, as for the future, we are like kind of our motto in the band is just, you know, we'll do whatever seems right and what we'll, what we want to do. And if people's schedules allow it, you know, and we also don't put pressure on each other. If one guy says, no, I don't want to do it because I want to watch the new season of Ozark right now and I can't do it. <laughs> and uh, we're like, okay. And it may suck. And Steve will probably grumble. But, um, uh, you know, we just, we're just all about not having like the pressures of like, like the bad part of music that we hate, like dictate what we're doing, but it doesn't mean that we don't want to do stuff. We do. Um, we, we're just open to anything kind of thing. We, we play shows together every 10 years. Um, that's, that's our schedule. Every 10 years, mm -hmm. we, we play yeah. shows together. So it's smart to not put too much pressure on it so that it can, that it can continue to exist versus be forced into something, you know, that, so to be able to balance that at all and to have the longevity that you've had, um, you know, that you've overcome many, 
many obstacles in many ways to continue to create experiences for people. And we all appreciate it very much. Yeah. I'll put it that way. I appreciate yep. it. Thank you Thanks for having us. That's all I got. Is there anything else about this? Uh, how about the, how about this reissue, the vinyl, oh, and yeah. the, the whole packaging and all that? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, that's been a long time. We've been talking about that for a long time. Um, and really the anniversary was last year, but we get a mulligan because of the mm-hmm. pandemic. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, but we wanted to, you know, there's always been this question from uh, fans is they want a reissue of that vinyl, the moon's down. So that kind of was like a no brainer, but we also wanted to do something that seemed a little bit special and wasn't um, just, you know, putting the record out and just, you know, same boring record kind of thing. So we wanted to seem kind of new. And so Nick worked really hard with, um, with uh, Ryan Clark and, and uh, to, to work on the layout and the packaging and everything. Nick, you want to talk about that? And that's yeah. also Jason and Unoriginal Vinyl too and Ryan Clark and all that. Yeah, it was, it was great because we've known the, you know, Ryan and Don back from Focal Point and training for Utah. We've known those guys forever. And, you know, when they started doing Invisible Creature, you know, we've been following their work for, for years. So they immediately were the first ones we thought of, you know, when we talked about doing something a little bit more for the re, the reissue. So we were just super happy that they were willing to do it and wanted to do it. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited that we could, like, honor the record, you know, with something a little bit more than just, uh, you know, a vinyl reissue, you know? And I think there is, there's a lot of, people have a lot of questions around that record because I think it just kind of like bubbled up and just happened. So people want to know like, what was going on? Why did Chris leave the band? Like, what was, all these questions that, you know, similar questions to, to what you've asked. And I think what was nice is we had the chance to kind of tell our own story about that record. And, you know, that went into the booklet and kind of kind of got edited and curated into this story that we could tell with the re- the release of the record, which I think a yeah. lot of people are going to dig, you know. Mm-hmm. It was written by Ryan Downey. And, um, you know, Ryan was, you know, he's entrenched in the scene and has a lot of great perspective. And I think he was able to really bring out some of the stuff that, we didn't necessarily know how to get out and so uh yeah so there's like an 80 page book that you know with kind of all of our accounts and of like just making the record you know like a lot of there's a lot of stuff that we talked about today but we go into some some other things so that was that was really a, a cool part of it as well I think everything just looks so beautiful and cool and exciting and I haven't I don't have it and haven't read that so I hope I didn't stomp on or ruin or mix up or leave out stuff that in there I know Ryan's a great writer and journalist and everything else too so I'm looking forward to uh, getting my hands on one of those as well but um, it looks so awesome and very exciting to everybody so it's really cool that there's this research there's all these other types of media from podcasts to the booklets to the vinyl to all the opportunities we do have these days to communicate that 
we didn't have back in the days where it was just mail order to find out, maybe find out about the emo diaries or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, but, but I feel like we're all really lucky to, to have it all and have the, the stories and, and have, you know, have what we have. So I really appreciate the time um, that you guys have invested into what further seems forever is that we could all draw so much from. I really, so I really, it's been very meaningful to me and so many other people that I know. So thank you guys so much. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Matt, for having us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for all the kind words. Thank you for listening to this episode of Labeled. My name is Steve White, and I'm from Central Nebraska, and I've been listening since the first season, that one you can't find anymore. A favorite scene moment of mine? Well, the highlight for me, that's being a staff photographer at Cornerstone. My day job? TV reporter. Can you tell from the voiceover? But that one week of the year, that was a highlight, putting my background to work, shooting a lot of my favorite bands, hanging out with some great friends, including some Japuza folks I still keep in touch with. Label is produced by Matt Carter and Knuckle Breaker Productions at Compound 3 Recordings. Editing and sound design by Seth Thompson. Editorial oversight by Jim Worthen and Adam Scatula. Brand and design direction by Joel Buchelman. Our production manager is Katie Franzen. Executive producers Brandon Ebo and Matt Carter. Additional support by Marshall Freemuth, Tyson Paoletti, and Anna, whose last name looks Czech or Polish, and I'm not even going to try that one. And see you next time. And now-